Putting up new buildings, we're knocking down the old. We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labour power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay. Produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji, we all of us are workers united we must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land. Welcome to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews with the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete Gang in cooperation with Community Radio 3CR. And break a couple of concrete pores to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builder's labour is a name to make a man feel proud. And welcome to Creatures of the Industry. And uh, today... Our special guest and creature is the one and only Andy Wallace. Good morning, Andy. How are you? I'm well, Ralph, and good morning to you. And after all the trials and tribulations that you've been through, it is You're great right. to see you, and you've got a smile on your dial. I have. And uh, we're going to talk about, well, we're going to talk shit, but we're also <laughs> going to talk about a whole lot of stuff that's happened in uh, the plumbing sector of the industry, something that uh, Creatures has not looked at up to now, but we're all part of this wonderful industry. We're all creatures of this wonderful industry. And it's about time we talked about some plumbing and plumbing issues too. <laughs> well, I hope I can give it justice, Ralph. No worries at all. So if you enjoy the show, listeners, and uh, you would like to uh, pass on your thoughts or make suggestions or even... Mention some criticisms. You can send us an email on creatures of the industry, all one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. Feel free to send us an email and let us know what you think. Righto. Let's now talk about the Andy Wallace story. <laughs> when did you first come into the industry? How did you come into the industry? And what was your first memories of? this industry? Well, I always, leaving school, I always wanted to be a sign writer or join the Merchant Navy like my dad was or be a tattoo artist. So I'd become <laughs> neither any of them. And uh, as I left school voluntarily, uh, I spoke to my uncle Norm, who was assistant secretary with, with Normie Gallagher to BLs, and said, I wouldn't mind getting in construction, Uncle Norm. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know, those blokes that blow whistles looks all right because I didn't know what they were. And My brother was a scaffolder and rigging with the BLs at the time. And um, the Uncle Norm said, he goes, well, I'll get you a job with the, as a sprinkler fitter. He said, that's a good trade, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, all right. So after about 12 months, 18 months of waiting, uh, I got the call to come over and uh, got introduced to Billy Davis and uh, joined up. And I must say, Billy... 
he signed me up, but he never took any money. I think it was only about 12 bucks or something at the time, but way back then. That was in 1980 and uh, started in Sprinkles way back then. So which company did you start your apprentice with? It was a company called Automatic Fire Services, which was a subsidiary to Wormalds. Wormalds had about five or six different companies at it was the time. Only, it was only one company, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was Wormalds. <laughs> but back in those days, Ralph, it was, you know, the sprinkler industry was, it was wide and varied, but there was about eight companies, but there was, look, ODG, FFE, Wormalds, of course. They were the main ones and they had the majority of the work. And there's a couple of smaller companies here and there, but they were the major ones. And if you didn't get a job with them, you found yourself working somewhere, which they were all connected some way. It was a different industry way back then. It was my first memories were I was working at ICI across the bridge, and living at Werribee, I thought it'd be easier to get to, but it was the worst worst job to get to because I had to catch the Werribee train, which was diesel all the way to Footscray. Well, not all the way, but to Footscray, train change tracks and jump onto electric and head back out. But uh, first week's wage, I only worked about four four days. I got me pay packet and I said to the bloke who was in charge, Ray Peak, and I said, there's something wrong with me wage because I'd never seen that sort of money. And he had a look at it and he goes, geez, you're on the board, they haven't paid your side all <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Was I basically tripled the wages from what I've been doing? Was just working as a labourer in a in a factory in Richmond as a seventeen eighteen year old. wasn't wasn't real big money, but coming into construction and then I went to very different jobs here, there, and whatever. And forty three years later, here I am. Now, ICI mm-hmm. in uh, Yarraville. Mm-hmm. That would have been uh, sprinkler fitting for. The chemical parts of the industry, and therefore there needed to be a uh, a whole lot of uh, safety precautions in place, and the sprinkler system was part of it. Yeah, it was, it was, and of course they were manufacturing beer bottles and everything else, and, yeah. and glass and, and all that, and high risk job. I mean, fire, but it didn't seem to worry the boys back in the day because the, there was no scissors. Yeah. Uh, well, they might have just been introduced, but they we weren't using it. Was the old triple stage and double stage wooden ladders. And uh, about a week on the job, one of the blokes said, what do you like at heights? I said, yeah, no problem. I don't mind heights. Well, up you go. And I shimmied up the ladder. I didn't know they bowed in the middle and then they sprung back out. But you got up top, tied your, tied your ladder off, dropped your rope down, hoisted it up. And uh, it was all it was heavy-gauge pipe back in those days. You wouldn't do it now. <laughs> no, and no. stock length was about 6. Well, 6.5. Six-inch pipe and screwed as well. It wasn't roll grooved or anything like that now, but you wouldn't be caught dead doing it now. So they've got it easy, the boys, now. Well, hanging by your nuts Yep. in an industrial complex, which are never good places to start with, no. and hauling that stuff up was a pretty, uh, shall we say, impressive start to your time in the industry. Well, it was. I should have kept my mouth shut and said I was scared of heights and that. <laughs> They would have got me foot in the ladders, but, you know, a lot of the blokes had footed your ladders. They'd sneak it off and have a brew and then come back. So half the time you're hanging up there, you know, hanging by your nuts, to say, say the least, you know. Then you'd bring your, you'd drop down, drop your ladder down, move it all across, shimmy back up, bring your pipe up, screw it off and back into it. It was, it was good honest work, though. So it was hard, but um, you certainly knew you'd done a day's work when you'd finished. Yeah. You're described as an apprentice. No. What did that mean? 
Well, that was pre-apprentice. Pre-apprentice, was it? Pre-apprentice, yeah. Now, how did they deal with the training of blokes like yourself? Well, when I started, they sort of, the bloke I was with again, Ray, Ray Peake, he said to me, did, you, did I go to a tech school or did I go to a high school? I said, no, I went to a tech school. He said, have you done any of this before, this type of stuff? I said, no. He said, plumbing at school? No. What about machine shop? No. He said, what have you done? I said, well, I've done a bit of, I'm pretty good at art. I can play footy. <laughs> he basically said, do you have a beer? And I said, oh, I love having a beer. He said, well, you'll be right. <laughs> so they, he put me on the screw machine and said, um, stay on this for a couple of days. And I was there, just, that's all I'd done on the screw machine all day. And it was out in the sun. And I just thought, it's got to be a better life than this. This is crap. And uh, I went up to him and I said, oh, can I do something else? He goes, what, you reckon you know what you're doing, do you? And I said, oh, I think I've got an idea. So he threw some measurements and some fittings and said, cut all them for me and come back when you reckon you're ready. So I said, oh, shit. I remember what he said, measure twice, cut once. So I cut all these pipes, put elbows on them, bends and whatnot, this, that, the other, and sat in the shed for about, well, it wasn't a shed, but it sat in the shade for about 10 minutes. I thought, I better go see him. And he came over and he goes, right, where are they? And I gave him their fitness. Bastard, he didn't even check him, he just threw him straight in the bin. He said, you'll be right. I went, no. What about me fence? He goes, no, no, you reckon they're right, they're right. I said, all right. He goes, now what do you like? That's when he said, what do you like at heights? I said, no problem. He said, up you go. And that, that was it. They showed me the tighter, tied off, half-hitched knot and put the safety on. That was about the only safety. <laughs> it was an interesting education, put it that way. It would have been a very interesting education. So you're a member of the union? Absolutely. In one of the sectors which was let's say, fairly robust in its industrial relations. Mm-hmm. And uh, when was your first blue on first, the job? First blue? Um, it's early 80s. I think the uh, sprinkler fitters were learning about whether there was a certified agreement or an award, if I remember. An award, the, plumber, the pipe fitters award. Yeah. Back in the day, we, we had a few blues of those. And I was, I was working on a job out at Footscray where it was a full-blown blue. Uh, Footscray Plaza, I think it was early. It was early eighties, and um, they took the travel offers because in sprinklers you, you get your travel, and uh, so Barry Fitton was the organiser. He came out, and uh, unbeknown to me, I was voted up as a shop steward. So all right, <laughs> I'll have a go. But uh, he said we're going to work to rule. So we didn't put any bands on. But we wouldn't work do anything untoward, so we worked exactly to the rule, which was by safety and, and all that sort of thing. And of course, the job slowed right up, and it's a good little tool to use. But uh, that was that slowed was to run. a snail's pace would be the term, wouldn't it? Yes, it was. It was a very, it was a very interesting job that, and it, it went backwards at a great rate of knots. But we got what we wanted in the end, and uh, I must say, you know, and not knocking our fellow fellow brothers, the old. Plumbers, but um, you know, like back in those days when there was a blue, it was mainly sprinkler fitters that went out mm. in the plumbing industry. Plumbers, you know, they were preferred to stay on site for whatever reason, but um, that's the way it was back in the day. And I found, if my memory serves me right, that when the when the sprinkler fitters or plumbers were, walked off the job, or the job stopped, and everybody, you know, and builders would do whatever they could to get us back on site. And uh, a lot of blokes, they were. I mean, I grew up in the era, some say unlucky, but I call it a lucky era, 
with the BLs and, and the plumbers and a lot of staunch blokes. The blokes back in those days were a lot different and in the, in the, and particularly in the, in the fire industry. And as a young bloke, when you come on site, the, uh, the foreman would ask to see your ticket. Not the shop steward, but the foreman. If you didn't have the ticket, he wouldn't let you start. He'd throw you out the smoke shed. And uh, I thought it was terrific because, you know, I couldn't be proud enough to pull my ticket out, you know. And uh, I was show everybody, look at me, I've been a young kid. It was fantastic. And I loved going to work in those days, Ralph. I really did. It was, you could write a book and nobody would believe it. You know, it's the shenanigans what happened on site, but. You know, it was a really good industry. It was good, honest work, and it was hard. It was hard, and you worked hard, but you you played hard too. But it wasn't very good for anybody who had a, any ambition of being a decent footballer because there's always alcohol involved with the sprinklers. <laughs> I was playing a little bit of VFA at the time. I thought I was going to be a half decent footballer, but uh, becoming a sprinkler fitter wasn't, <laughs> wasn't the wisest of moves. Moves, but uh, anyway. Well, it probably built up your muscles. It just oh, uh, it did. I just mean, slowed, well, slowed a few other things down. That was well. Horrible. The work was good because it did. It built you up. It was heavy, hard work, and you, you ate gods you could eat. Then you'd come home from working all day, throwing up six-inch pipe to running kilometres or miles back in those days, and playing, you know, training for footy. But the Thursday payday was was a bad day to have <laughs> footy training on because a lot of the times, you know, if you weren't paid by ten o'clock, you were over in the pub by eleven. And the boss would come in and pay you. You get back to work. Yeah, yeah, no worries. And we'd see you on the, on the Friday. But they were the good old days, but you couldn't do that now. No, no professionalism uh, means that uh, one, we don't drink on site no more. No. And two, we don't try and drink and play football. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I learned pretty quickly that the two don't mix. That's it. So here we are in the early 80s and. Uh, I guess what we really need to start talking about now is you're well established in the sprinkler fitting industry. Yep. You've been a delegate. <laughs> yep. And where do you reckon the unions in the industry were in the early 80s? You know, it's like in terms of organisation, in terms of wage and conditions, the campaigns that were being run, how did you see the industry at that time? Well, it was, it was a different time, Ralph, and... Uh you know, the blokes were a lot different back in those days too. And, you know, not, not everybody, not everything was given to you. I mean, if you wanted pay rush, you had to fight for it, conditions, you know. I remember working on a lot of jobs as a young sprinkler fitter and there was no sheds. No sheds, you had a big red wooden toolbox and your tools and you sat on and had your lunch. And I remember for me 9th birthday, my sister bought me a... The old stainless steel flask, because he could take hot, so I could take hot soup. Because he had no nothing, you know, no pie warms, no nothing. So the battles to get that. I mean, and the jobs in the city they were a lot different, but unions collectively, you know, and um, collectively looking back and, and thinking, it was you didn't hesitate to go out on strike. I mean, if you had a blue, it was always well worth it. It wasn't a bullshit blue, as, as they say. And uh, you didn't always get paid for them, which was never never entered anybody's head about payments. Um, it was a luxury, and that came a lot a lot longer uh, later down the track, getting payments. But everybody was one. I mean, I, I think it wasn't just the BLF and the plumbers or the plumbers and whoever else around the back in the day going out and strike because they wanted. It was a strike 
for everybody to get and everybody benefit. And I mean, you look around, you go on sites, uh, you got lino, you got you know ceilings, you got air conditioning, you got heating, you got microwaves, you got pie warmers, you got light milk, you got heavy milk, you got everything, you know. Soy milk? Soy milk, you know. Dare I say it. You got this coffee, decaf, blah, blah, blah. Back in the day, it was, it was real grateful to have hot water. And international roast. And international <laughs> <laughs> The cheapest I could get. Bilo wasn't around at that time. You could get four, if we could get 40, Nescafe 43 beans, you were yeah. a luxury job. That was a top job, yeah. But sort of issues that were front and centre for not just yourself, but for building workers, construction workers generally. This was the period where the Accord first came in, where mm. superannuation became an issue and so on. How did you see that period? What was it like for you on the jobs as these issues came up? Well, it, it, was, it was great because, I mean, I was always had an interest in the betterment of the blokes and whether it was a BLF official or one of ours officials, we were having a meet, especially like with, with your CBUS and Ninko Link and Super, you know, especially with that sort of stuff, everybody should have the right to get Super and there was no hesitation by the blokes to, you know, some jobs got hit more than others, but you didn't hesitate at all and it was everybody. I mean, there was a few people who didn't like going out, but collectively it was in... You could see the writing on the wall. It might not benefit a lot of people at that particular time because there was a lot of elder, elderly um, tradesmen and whatnot in the industry, but certainly way back then I did think, I thought, well, I might not get that much out of it, but my kids will. Yeah. So it was a benefit that had to come and it was well thought for by all, all unions. And it, it's, well, look, look what the boys are getting now. So it's, it's, yes, it's certainly uh, a bit different uh, mm. from... 20 bucks a week in those days. <laughs> but, like, the, you're right. There's a lot of blokes, older blokes, who, my memory, were not particularly expecting much in the time they had left in the industry. But they certainly had a long-term view. And they, they did. And I guess from little, anything looks like an improvement. And when you see your children, your grandchildren, going to get huge improvements over the journey, you're staunch. Well, I can recall on a, a lot of jobs when the Alimax started coming right into fashion and everything else, and I would say 98 to 99% of the Alimax drivers were older BLF boys because they were always manned by the BLF, and, and, and they were they were terrific, you know, and they were coming to an end, and they would get into everybody as you come in because they would, don't forget, boys, we got to, you know, you got to meet them about your long service and all that. And young blokes I worked with were saying, ah, it doesn't matter, it'll get done. And, and it did matter. And it didn't benefit them to a great a great deal. And we had a lot of plumbers, plumber welders, you know, older sprinkler fitters. And in particular, the sprinkler fitters, they, they'd say, you make sure you go. And blokes saying, well, you know, it's not going to do much for me. And I said, yeah, well, but what about your kids, your nephews, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. You've, you've got, you know, family coming in the next 10, 20 years. It will affect them and you've got to go and make sure you secure it. And, you know, jumping in the alley, making heaven, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of them were Irish, the old boys, and they, they were terrific and I was, I reflect on that a hell of a lot. It's again, you get an Alan Beck now, and you've got a kid who's about nineteen or twenty, you know, because he's somebody, somebody's one of the directors of the builders or whatever, getting work experience, and 
they're just not the same caliber, in my opinion, uh, of, of back in the day. You know, and even some of the older uh, sprinkler fitters and, and plumbers, when you worked on the major jobs, well, you couldn't get them in the alley, max all the peggies, and, and that's fair enough. It wasn't our jobs. No intention of doing that. But the good companies would would have a, a store on site, so they'd, they'd put all the fittings and you know your pipe and all that sort of stuff, and. It wasn't so much that you needed it, but it was created. The, the good, the bigger companies could afford it, and they create a job for a bloke who was coming up to retirement. And he sat in a stall all day, and you go down and give him your order, and he'd get it for come back up to smoke his son, and he'd have it all bagged up for you, handy and level three, and he'd pick it up, and it was great. And, and they were fantastic blokes. They they were they could tell you some stories. And well, a few people on this podcast over the many episodes have commented on the, the sheds being the best classroom in the world. Oh. And maybe you've raised another point. The Alley Mac was a uh, hyper classroom because <laughs> once that Alley Mac operator had you inside, <laughs> you weren't getting out till he let you out. Yes, you had to be very kind. <laughs> and, had to be very kind, Dom. And basically, they were pretty... Not just experienced bikes, they were very forthright bikes. Yes. And you learnt from the, as you say, from the Peggy's, from the Stormen, from the Alley Mac drivers, you learnt about the industry. Yeah. And I think uh, that was one of the, the really enduring sort of images in my mind of basically getting a little lecture. Yeah. Because you said something uh, at a meeting or you didn't say something, which was even worse. Yeah. And people actually acted together as a team and talked to each other and taught each other. Yeah, 100%. Like you, as you said, once that door slowed, slammed down and you were there, well, you, you know, the driver, he'd had a captive audience and as you said, sometimes he'd just bypass your floor because he's in the middle of a good yarn, he'd take you to the top and then he'd come back down again. You know, and I remember one foreman said, he said, where have you been? I said, I've been in the Alimac. He goes, oh, you're right, eh? <laughs> and that was it. You know, no one argued with the Alimac drivers. But those blokes, a lot of them, as I again, 90%, 99% of them, they'd been around the industry a long time, you know, and they'd been pushing wheelbarrows full of mud and bricks and concrete, knocking down walls, you know, all sorts of crap. And, and there was a bit of a little bit of a reward for them. They could ride out a couple of years and put some money away because they'd done all the overtime and good on them, so they should have been able to. And I had the utmost and greatest respect, you know, from, from my side as a fitter. Uh, the only max and the Peggy's, I mean, two of the most highly respected back in the day, way back then. Now, issues for sprinkler fitters. Mm-hmm. The plumbers, uh, general plumbers and so on, the air conditioning blokes, they're all part of the plumbers' union. Yep. But... You specifically come from sprinkler fitting. Yeah. What were the issues in the 80s that were front, front and centre for you in terms of trade, in terms of conditions <laughs> on the job and, not the least, the money? The money. Well, that's... that's, that's you, only come, you only come to work to sell your labour. That's right. And there was a good old saying, sprinkler fitters, which if you didn't like the company, you'd go and, you know... 
you'd see a lot of plumbers. Oh, I've been with this company for 40 years and this, that, the other, and then all 20 years or 10 years or whatever, and sprinkle I've been with this company for 10 months, and that was a big turn. Because in those days you could you could chase up, and I'd done it quite a few times. I didn't like the job I was on, and there was one closer to wherever we lived with mum and dad, and so shit, there's one in Geelong, that's a beauty, I'll go to that one and ring up and you could change. Yeah. Nowadays you can't, it's not as flexible, but with the plumbers, and, and I'll probably get hung for this, but I mean... They thought they were above the sprinkler fitters because it wasn't a trade when I started mm. and you had to do a four-year apprenticeship and rightly so to become a plumber and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But why sprinklers come about a lot was a lot of plumbers didn't like the heavy lifting of the pipe and the dirty work because when you work on service, you get covered in black water and plumbing was relatively new. You had PVC and lesser extent copper, which was a lot lighter. And uh, they didn't like the heavy stuff and they were quite comfortable because they always had plenty of work and you could go to a plumbing company and you could stay there for X amount of time. It was, it was what it was. We had sprinkler fitters. I mean, you were coming and going. Sometimes you'd go and shoot three days in a row and you'd have four new blokes or someone's left or whatever. It was just forever changing. Um, then, you know, we had a few discrepancies of what should be done with the hydrants. We said it was ours, they said it was theirs. There was a few altercations over who done what, but I mean, it was ridiculous, really, because we are all in the one, one union. Yeah, I mean, most D-marks were between unions, not within unions. <laughs> <laughs> well, we stood on our own on that. We had a few disputes, but, but you know, yeah, Ralph, it was good. And then, you know, then we had a few, well, we had a lot. We had a lot of run-ins with the metal workers. Back in the back in the time, and lesser extent nowadays. But uh, back in the time, well, sprinkler fitters wasn't a registered trade, mm. whereas plumbing always was. So the metal workers decided that they could do it. You didn't have to be a, a tradesman mm. as such. Uh, they weren't registered. I don't think. Don't think they've ever been registered. So they decided they get it. And their their dunghill was always the um, petrochemical joints where they'd get in because. They'd have a lot of their work, which is fair enough, their work's their work, but we couldn't get in and, uh, was, you know, if they come on to a small a job in, in the city where well, we've got our own revenge in lots of different ways, but, you know, still to this day, but now Sprinklers is a registered trade, which mm. I think it was, I started in 80, 83, 84, 84, I think we started getting, I think, and my old boss, Earl Setches, he was one of the first apprentices when that came in, and that was thanks to Billy Davis and, and people like Billy and Barry Fitton with the foresight they had and the pressure and, you know, the work they put in for it to become a trade. Well, some, yeah, sometimes your old mate Earl says that he was the apprentice of the year. He was oh. probably the only apprentice that year. <laughs> yeah, well, there was lots of things, but I don't think he was playing the apprentice of the year. <laughs> no, I know he wasn't. <laughs> And, you know, that, and that was one of the best things that's ever happened, you know. And um, there was, of course, there was, a, there was a period there where you had people that worked in sprinklers for 20 or 30 years. What do you do with them? So we had to do like a grandfather clause where, you, where you'd done X amount of time and I just fell in. So lucky I didn't have to go back to school because I would never have passed. But um, <laughs> you, you went over to trade school. You'd done, you'd done an assessment and they said, well, right, are you all right? So they, they passed you in. So gone were the days we started as what they call a junior or a deckhand, then a second-class fitter, first-class fitter, then a charge hand. 
and it was basically loosely based on first, second, third, fourth year apprenticeship. So when we come in, well, what do you do then? Because Neil Sprinklers is registered trade. Yep. The next thing is to bring them up to speed with the wages because the actually hourly rate of the sprinklers was a lot less than a plumber, but we got the hour travel and some companies would offer you too even more just to go and work with them. They had to work and they couldn't get fitted. So, so well, how much are you getting on the job? And you'd say, well, I'm getting the award plus an hour and a half travel. Well, I'll give you three hours travel. Mm. Or they might throw, throw and give you a living away from home allowance. Well, that was big money. You know, it was like $200 a week cash, basically. So you, you jumped. And the sprinkler, fit, the, the sprinkler industry has always been a bit like that, you know. And we worked in, I think we worked in well with everybody, but, but a lot of times around blues were for our own blokes, you know, unfortunately. Now, coming from a scaffold background, we used to move between jobs. Mm-hmm. That was part of the justification for the extra money and the extra travel and so yeah. on. Was it the same with the sprinkler fitters? Did you do more than one, one job a day or travel between? No, uh, no not really. It came in. Plumbers, it was uh, an over-award payment. It was an over-award payment. Oh, okay, I got it. Yeah. I got it. So the, the plumbers were on half an hour or whatever they were on. Yeah. Where the plumbers were on, were on an hour minimum. So that bought us up thereabouts. And the, the bigger companies, they'd say, well, right, uh, we'll throw in, we'll give you an extra hour. So we were getting two hours a lot of times. And then, again, it, you know, when it comes to agreement times, whether that was something we fought for, plumbers wouldn't, wouldn't fight as much as what fitters would. Yes, well... There's always arguments in that Too area. Yes, yes. But some of the uh, issues that were front and centre at the time, you've mentioned uh, superannuation, redundancy. Mm-hmm. Because the plumbers were an original signatory to Incalink. Yep. Uh, and, but there had been redundancy payments before that. It's called TCR and I can't recall what it was. What it would, but it was a redundancy, which the fitters we had, yep. which, you know, Billy Davis again, and Barry and, and Rosie, I think, had a bit to do with back in the day. And we had our own type of redundancy. I can't remember, well, it's that long ago now, I can't recall, but we did have a redundancy. And it was worked on over, if you worked for up until 12 months, you got a week in lieu. Yep. And then progressively, you worked two years, you got two up, and it was capped at about. Uh, six weeks, I think. It might have been four weeks. It might have been four weeks. About four weeks, I think. Yeah, and then we also had, you got a week in lieu because we were on weekly hire, not daily hire like plumbers were. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, I mean, this is some of the intricacies that people don't know about these days. Uh, daily hire, you were guaranteed eight hours. Yeah. Uh, but you weren't guaranteed a job next day. That's right, yes. Whereas yeah. those on weekly hire... Metal trades, for example, were always on weekly hire. Yep. That meant that uh, they had to get a week in lieu of notice. Yeah. Us, only eight hours in lieu of notice. Well, Start in the morning, yep. get get sacked <laughs> yeah. an hour later and uh, you got an hour's pay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, if you fought it out, you got a, an extra eight hours for the next day you missed out on. Yeah. But there's a few things that probably were unique to sprinkler fitting, and one of those I would have thought was the issue of welding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, I remember there was a, a welding allowance, yep. and it had been around, well, I think 
my understanding is that the first time there was a Sprinkler Fitters Award was actually 1926, uh, but there had been agreements, what called in those days certified agreements, which yep. were the equivalent of awards right through to the late 70s, but there were a lot of allowances involved in the sprinkler fitting and also the uh, Plumbers Award Southern States, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, really were forced on the Plumbers Union uh, compared to the old state wages board system. Yeah, yeah. Well, with the with the welding allowance, um, I couldn't tell you how much it was, but well, in those days, when when you built a set of valves, if they didn't fit, you cut them out with an oxytorch and then you welded them back in, blah, blah, blah. It's a lot different nowadays because a lot of them come prefab. So we had a lot of plumber welders get transferred over, and one was your mate, his funeral went to last Friday, yes. Stewie Walker. One and only. One and only, Stewie, and you know he, he was he was very vocal on on site, Stewie, about that sort of stuff, and he he would get his allowance, and whether he was welding or not, and, and we 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 backed that up, we backed that up on site that if you got a weld in the allowance, you had him there as a welder. He might not be welding every day, but he got paid every day. So there was a lot of, I suppose, um, little bits and pieces there. Yeah. That leads me to the other issue of allowances, and that is when sprinkler fitting became a trade, recognised as a trade, did you then get the licence allowance as well? No, we got a registration allowance. All oh, right, so, so different, different name, same thing? <laughs> well, not really. Registration is you're a registered fitter. You can work anywhere. Well, basically, the idea was you could work anywhere in Australia. Licence, to get your licence, you had that. If you want to, if I wanted to start my own company, oh, you, right, you, had okay. to get, you had to be licensed. Or you could work under, so you could work under me because I had a licence or vice versa. But registration allowance, um, <clears throat> that was brought in as a, Overboard payment again, but to bring fitters up with plumbers, yeah. where the plumbers don't get registration allowance. And that followed the uh, Federal Plumbers Award Southern States. Yeah, Southern States. Yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, for those who are listening, and it's probably a bit hard to con- uh, conceive, but the Plumbers Union had always resisted uh, a federal award. Yeah. I mentioned a bit earlier that state wages system... Uh, actually allowed for each trade or occupation to have its own wages board. And in Victoria, one, due to the amount of work, and two, because union organisation was a lot better, the rates uh, paid to people in Victoria in the plumbing and sprinkler fitting trades and that were better than New South Wales, Queensland and so on. Yes. And when, uh, this is just a little bit of history for people, uh, when the Plumbers Union were f- actually forced to have a federal award, because I don't think they were going to be able to stop the system basically pushing them into it, um, one of the things that happened was that there was resistance within the Plumbers Union yeah. in the New South Wales and uh, Queensland branches to a federal award. And they ended up with their own federal awards. Yes. And then they had to be brought up to the standard of well, the, the southern states. Yes. Well, that's 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 a battle that still goes on today, Ralph. <laughs> well, let's just say I'm not surprised. Because history does have a habit of repeating itself. itself. Yes, yeah. and uh, I would have thought that your time in the industry in the 80s was 
pretty complicated because of all these sorts of issues because they were bigger than just sprinkler fitting. It was a, a plumber's yeah. union issue. Uh, but the extension of the federal award to non-construction uh, plumbers and so on and also the restraints that were put on by the Accord. And for those who don't know, the ACTU and the Hawke Labor government sat down and did an accord. It was going to bring peace in our own time and wage justice. Well, they bought enforced peace but not much wage justice. No, sort of backfired a little bit, didn't it? Well, by the time we'd got to, to the Accord Mark III, it was an absolute shambles. Well, I do remember at that time we... We had a meeting, wages increase came up and I can't remember exactly how much it was. We, we had meeting after meeting at RMIT just around the corner and uh, it wasn't just uh, fitters, it was plumbers and a whole, whole union, all of us. And unfortunately for, for the, that particular um, organisation that were running the union at the time, Best I could do was a percentage. It wasn't much of it. It was about 0.5%, which was less than CPI. Mm-hmm. And one bloke said, we can't even get a can of Coke without pie for that, which was, it was terrible, and we just couldn't get it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually were going backwards in wage increases at the time. But then, you know, shining light, I suppose, progressed further down. The, down the well, there's actually, just referring to uh, some notes I've got here, there was actually a $70 campaign mm-hmm. during the Accord. Logger claims were served, uh, I think it was 86. We all remember 86 as a deregistration year, but there was a lot of things going on in the industry at the time. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, for the Plumbers Union, uh, there was a lot of shit going on too. We're trying to, as you just said, trying to get out of the confines of the uh, the accord and what that actually meant to people's standard of living, we ended you ended up I think uh, with applications under the forty five D legislation. Yeah, and there was a fine. There was nearly sunk us. <laughs> I think uh, the fine, which I've got noted down here, is a. Two hundred eighty thousand dollars, which in those days would have been well over a million. Well, we didn't have much money because I mean the money coming was just going straight back out to the organisers, wages and expenses and what not. And when when that came in, that two hundred eighty thousand dollar fine, well, there was great concern that we wouldn't wouldn't be standing on our own two feet. Um, there was lots of meetings. I went to a few of them. I can't remember much in the other days, but it was it was. Scary times, to say the least. You know. Yes, we had a Labor government, and yes. a lot of uh, unions were in trouble. Mm-hmm. And looking back now, things didn't improve that much. No, no. With the exception, probably, of the building construction industry, where organisation uh, was maintained. Yeah. And uh, when you get a property boom like we've had in uh, Melbourne for the last twenty-something uh, years. Yeah. It's fantastic. Puts you, puts you in a good position to negotiate. It, it does, you know, and, and rightly so. Yeah. Because, I mean, the, the board, you know, everybody, not just sprinklers and plumbers and carpenters and so for me, everybody works hard out there and it's it's not an easy job, as you know, Ralph, and, you know, very mental health can be strained because of the pressures put on people to do certain jobs, to do the hours and, and whatnot. And 
we, we, um, well, the marriages don't go the distance, do they? No, a lot, a lot of them don't. And uh, the money's great and all the rest of it, but, I mean, you know, there's no pockets in shrouds. You can't take it with you, so, yeah. That's right. You know, I mean, we, we it's probably relaxed a little bit, but back in, in the 80s, the, the sprinkler fitters were the first to put on, like, an overtime ban. And I remember I tell the blokes now, and they think I'm talking bullshit, you know, but it's true. If, if, if I was working with, say, automatics and... Well, they did, they laid off, I think they had about 60 fitters and they just were slowly getting rid of them and then they laid off a lump sum of about 25 and I had to be one of them. I happened to be one of them because um, I was one of the last ones, one of the first, last on, sorry, first off, that's right, I was one of the last ones put on. So I was one of the first ones to go and uh, it went through the industry, well, right, there's fitters out of work. So there was an overtime ban on, so you'd only do five days. And um, a company like Wormwood would say, well, hang on, we, we, we've got a shitload of work, we need some, so they'd ring up. Because the ban wasn't just for that particular company, it was across sprinklers across yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. So the builders would be jumping up and down and go, well, hang on, what's that blue with Wormwood? What's that got to do with automatics or vice versa or whatever? They said, well, we can't bring the blokes in, we're not going to go against the union, you know. Mm-hmm. So... Wormwoods would ring up and say, well, we'll take four, and then say, oh, DG, so we'll take three, et cetera, et cetera. And once the blokes got dispersed and uh, there was everybody was gainfully employed, then we'd open up the overtime. And we had it capped, we had uh, the, the fitters. We had a mass meeting. We used to <laughs> have across the road from the office at Trades Hall, and they were quite vocal, especially after lunch. And uh, you, you can imagine... Uh, we put an eight-hour overtime on that we wouldn't do any more hours than eight. And the theory was, and I stand by it to this day, and I'll probably get shit canned by a lot of people, but at the end of the day, we would much rather have, with the overtime band when people were laid off, we would rather have 20 people, 20 fitters on that job working five days than having 10 working unlimited overtime. Yeah. So we kept it at eight, and that's been around, like in, I reckon that's from about 1983. 84, and then I think uh, it took about the old, our plumber mates about 10 years to catch up because they like to do a little bit of OT. And uh, now they've got it as well. It, it's probably relaxed in different areas. In saying that, if, if something had to be done, a hospital, and you know, we wouldn't lock down weekends, we wouldn't work. But if a job had to be done, if it was necessity to, to the people, the public, we, we, of course we do. We're not going to hold a job up just out of spot. But, so, but if it was general, just catch up because they wanted you to work because they wanted you to work because it was an idea, no. Yeah. And that still goes on to this day, I believe. Yeah, well, the uh, Christmas shutdown is still a subject of argument every year. Yep. And the argument isn't just with bosses. It's with no. a lot of members who just go, well, you know, as far as we're concerned, there's a chance to make money, so... Who cares? Yeah. Yeah, well, well, yeah. That's the difference maybe between the industry in bygone years and uh, more recently. The difference, I, going back when we're talking about in the early 80s and or 80s and early 90s, the cable of bikes back then appreciated, I believe, what the union created and done, as in your radios. I mean, we, we all started off on the, on the, the 38 and, of course, the shopping centres used to fight too for now to get on the shopping centre because you've got the extra RDO. And now it's it's just 
take for granted that we take every second Monday off. Come Christmas time, our blokes and some of them out there, you know, will give me opinion to myself, but they'd be quite happy to sell at the radios. But what happens is the reason, and, and, and our union in particular, we don't pay to triple, quadruple time to come in and our blokes are dirty on that. And they go, well, that's bullshit, we won't come in. Well, good, you're getting the point. We don't want you coming in. You've worked all year, you've done all your overtime. We think it's time for everybody to have a good break. And I understand some people now... Like especially after COVID, and they said, well, I haven't worked for 12 months, I could do with the action. I said, but that's all right, because I'll tell you, you're going to work your six RDOs over the, over the Christmas period, but when you get laid off and you've got no RDOs, you're going to come at me and tell me if I shouldn't have led you to do it. And that's from experience, Ralph. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, so. a, there's a, sometimes a bit of a problem explaining to people that you work to live, not live to work. Mm. And uh, equally, too, more delays, more pays. Yes. Well, I do remember back in the days and the boss would come on up and he'd say, you're coming in to work tomorrow, Andy, on a Friday, and I'd go, no, I've got to play footy tomorrow. And he said, it's cricket season. I said, oh, I'm playing cricket then. So, <laughs> <laughs> and they'd say, can you just come in? And I'd go, yeah, all right, no worries. But, you know, you'd get into the boozer on about one thirty or even early on some jobs and have a few beers, and by the time I caught the train home and... Down the local, there's no one knowing you were coming in. They used to beg you to come in. We'll pay for your taxi to come in. But but nowadays, it's. My uncle Norm used to say to me, he goes, When you work a Saturday, he said, Bank that. He said, Just live off your five days. And I've, I've pumped it into my two sons, and I don't know whether they listen or not. But, you know, and I was, a lot of the young blokes, you know, when they start as apprentices. Well, that advice is what I got when I started, and. Uh when we hit the recession in 1990, mm-hmm. I'd put it all on the on the mortgage, mm-hmm. and I only had to meet the interest payments, not the bloody, uh, yeah. not the, the substantial payment, because I was so far ahead. Yeah, yeah. And I survived good on the on the rock and roll because I was out for a long time. Yeah, yeah. That was a terrible time. I remember it was at the end of Melbourne Central. Yeah. When every, right. I think everybody in history had to run there. And, Boy, was that a job for the workers. But I remember after that, I think it was 18 months I was unemployed and I worked in a factory of a mate of mine and I was, you worked from 7 to 4 and you, you worked 7 to 4. Yeah. You had 15 minutes for lunch and that was about it. But I had two little girls and you had yep. to do it. And yep. uh, that finished up and I, I remember working as a brickies labourer with a couple of mates and... Painting fences, putting up signs, for sale signs in property, up the farms that were every sale, carting hay, doing anything I possibly could to make payments for the house. Yeah, well, we were survivors, I think. Well, yeah. My break, uh, digressing a little bit, but it does sort of illustrate the issue. I ended up being in uh, metal maintenance, shutdowns and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good money. Hard work Hard for work. a few weeks and then there was nothing. Nothing, yeah. And uh, I got through probably two years or more mm. in that period um, simply because as a scaffy rigger I was able to get some work in the shutdowns. Yeah. yeah. I don't have those shutdowns much anymore. No, they That's don't. It's another way of surviving which is gone. Yeah. It's getting very, you know, in shortfall those types of jobs. 
Well, the ability of people to survive in downturns, uh, one, mm. it's not so readily available, those op- alternatives, and two, I don't think people are quite used to it. No. I think they know what to do. Go down to the railway yards and, yeah. you know, basically load freight trucks. Yeah. You get a job, uh, you know, the old days of the ship's painters and dockers. And, yep. and you'd go down, and people can talk about that union as much as they like, it was work for people who couldn't get work elsewhere. It was shit work, yep. but at least it paid. Yep, 100%. And we know, obviously we know a lot of people who work down there. And if you needed a job, they looked after you 100%. Yep. As long as you were prepared to do the work, as you said, yep. there was shit work, but, well, good honest day for a good honest day's wage. Well, Meatworks was the same. You could go meat, down there, yeah, exactly, stand there at the front. Exactly, yep. You were prepared to get there at six o'clock and stand there for two hours, and they'd come, they'd pick up and all of you, 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 you. And let's let's face it, it's not a real classy job, but it paid, paid. You know, you got paid and it paid your wages and it paid your bills. So I guess we're reflecting upon uh, a period of time when solidarity really was, you know, top of the hit parade. Absolutely, and the marches in the city you'd get hundred thousand, I suppose. I can remember a few marches around the city uh, for various issues, including uh, one about uh, a young uh, plumbing apprentice who got tipped off the side of a uh, grollo job by some security guards. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah, that was my job. Yep. Was, I was working on that job around... It was off... Holland uh, Street. Yeah. Yeah, and we... What was it? It was... Well, March in Medibank, was it Medicare? Yeah, there was, there was, I think yeah. it was Medicare and anyway, because the boys had a few beers and I think it was, might have been some steel fixers were trying to get their own union together or something, but then there was a bit of a blue and a couple of... There was a few blues going on. Yeah, one or two. And a few of the sprinkler fitter boys cut full of piss. They had, you know, there was a blue round the corner, so I went <laughs> around the corner and... Grollo had his goons. We had the T-shirts made, Goon Buster T-shirts yep. made up. I still got one somewhere, and the old mate Simon Jewell bought it in. The t- but uh, yeah, and we went. Uh, everybody attacked the, the grow, poor old Grocon. They got attacked pretty hard in the next yep. upcoming days. But I, I just wonder whether you'd get that ability to support and back up if it happened today. But we people would get the ass. There'd be blues on jobs and action to be taken against them by employers. The police would get involved and all the rest of it. But when you started marching around the town, you'd go to a job, you'd mm-hmm. ask them to come off the job and support you, and they did. And yep. that was the difference. Yeah. It was it, it, it's something that I remember fondly. I mean, we lost a lot of money in the process, but I mean, yeah. I remember fondly because. There was solidarity, and people did support each other. Oh, 100%. If, if you were on a job and a, a march comes through, because you, sometimes you, you didn't get all the ins and outs of it, and you say, oh, where do we go, where we don't go? And, you know, when the, when the, bloke, the boys were marching past, I knew what I'd done. I said, well, I'm picking up my tools, and we, we'd yeah. all run down, 100%. And, and you know, it's unfortunately today, I mean, there's a little bit of subcontracting around, not just, you know... Plumbing, but everywhere, and people don't, if they don't work, they don't get paid. Yep. But yep. money was never an issue in those days. I mean, I can remember, I think I was telling you early doors, there was a job, 
and I can't remember. I think Lewis. I think it was Lewis, but um, she a pane of glass fell down. So we went home for twenty four. And in those days, when you went home for twenty four, so if you went at ten o'clock, you come back at ten o'clock. You didn't start at seven. No. You come, come back, back at, at 10. ten. And this particular time it was close to Christmas, so the weather was warm. And of course, when we went home, everybody went into the pub first and turned up, and there was a few. Different coloured faces and whatnot under the weather boys. Few headaches. Few headaches and whatnot. And the, the builder got up and he said, We've done this. And, and, and he'd done everything right. And you could hear everybody go, oh, Shit. So he said, <laughs> But he made a fatal mistake. He, he said, And that's as a goodwill gesture to show that we're all right. He said, We're going to pay you. We're going to pay you for time off. And there was dead silence. And anyway, one wag put his hand up and he goes, so we've gone home over, saved the Eminence payment, and you're trying to bribe us to come back. So we went home for another 24. <laughs> so we lost two days' wage. So for, all, so for all those employers and others <laughs> who are judgmental on such actions, um, I guess you've won one here. But, uh, no, but the solidarity was important. Absolutely. The 90s was a pretty mixed old period in terms of... First the recession in 1991 into 92. Yeah. Very slow to pick up work in Melbourne and Victoria generally. Yeah. Um, where were you at that point? You, as you said, you've had some issues getting work, Yep, keep making the house payments and the rest of it, but where were you in the 90s and then when did you become... Well, an organiser with the plumbers, yeah. Oh, well, I was, I was on the, I was on the dole doing whatever job I could, whenever I could, and out of the blue, an ex-employee, employee rang me and said, um, we had a job up in Strathmerton, yeah. I think it was Strathmerton, the cheese, yep, the cheese factory. And I God, said, oh yeah. Uh, just interject there. God bless. Goulburn Murray Valley, all those <laughs> other dairy and cheese factories and all mm. the rest of it because in rural Victoria they were big jobs. Yes. But they didn't have the people. So no. people had to go and live away from home and That's get right. it done. So, so uh, down at Dennington, down at yeah. uh, Warrnambool, down in the uh, in Gippsland, up in the Goulburn Murray Valley. It, like there was a a lot of those jobs were very important. Well, I went up then and I only worked for about three or four weeks because I'd been a shop steward on a lend lease job at uh, Burke Place. Oh, I, yeah. As I took over and I went there and the bloke who was, who was the delegate, I can't remember, anyway, I all got voted up somehow. And the state OH&S bloke from that particular job was up there and he goes, I remember you. All right. So that was the end of me. So they, I was working with a mob called Thomas Walker's. So they had to bring me back to Melbourne, but they kept me employed and then uh, I worked with them for a few years and then it was a bit quiet and I was going to general meetings and there was never seemed to be enough delegates and it was nine out of ten of them were sprinkler fillers. There wasn't too many plumbers. There was a few, but the majority were sprinkler fillers and I was always involved in, it, in going to the general meetings and, and whatnot. And um, the Alfred Hospital, they were doing an extension there and... This was in 90, and uh, Earl had rang me up. He was because we'd just taken over the old brigade, and the, new, the fire up team was in, and he said, We want you to go there as a delegate. And I said, Hey, okay. 
what does what him call? I haven't done it for a few years. And he goes, no, no, we'll get you there, blah, blah, blah. You go to the sprinkler company. As soon as the pipe lands on site, you're there. And, oh, okay, I don't know if I can do it. You'll be right. And anyway, I got there and uh, went from that job to the, the um, Pioneer Hospital. And then I went down to, down to Docklands with Derek. I was working with Derek and Huey Harkins and a few of the boys, Tony Rea, and that, that was a ripper job. And that was one job and... You talked to National called, Bank job. National Bank, that's right. One and only. Yeah. And we, we had a good rapport with each other. We, there was no, we had no blues whatsoever. The, 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 the plumbers, see for me and he to you, we were all strong together and that was a really good job and you'll have people still say to this day, and that's employers as well, so that was one of the better jobs run. So it was credit to all of us, I suppose. But it just showed what unions can do. And then I... Um, was asked to to go on the road, and I said, "Yeah, all right, I'll give it a go." And then something. So this is early two thousands. Early two thousand. Yeah. They put somebody else on, and I got asked again. I said, "Yes," and they put somebody else on. I got asked a third time. I said, "No, don't worry about it. I'm not, you know, I'm not copping that." So then they put me on when I refused to take it, and I wasn't actually asked. I was told, "Here's the keys, and where you go." And I said, "Oh, all right." So I drove around for a few weeks and. Ran in and I was doing because I lived in Werribee. I was doing the western suburbs, and at that particular time, I had uh, organisers. I had Jerry Beanstead was an organiser. Mark Travers was, was an organiser. Elias was doing a bit of the worst. Sean Rean was doing the best. I had about eight so for me organisers. And Franco Grady and poor old me. And it wasn't well. It was a bit of an experience, but good memories and good fellas and everybody. Every one of them. Looked after me to a treat, and they brought me along, made me welcome, and and helped out. And that was there I was organised, and then I got brought into the city, and um, that was another experience, different ball game altogether. Working in the city and working out in the suburbs, the blokes were a little bit more precious in the city because I think they're numero uno. But my opinion, with them, you know, the members out and the scrub out in the suburbs are just as important. So. What, what were some of the jobs you did out in the west? Out in the west? Oh, God. There was... Werribee um, well, Plaza? No, no, that was that was already done. They were doing a bit of, um, what do you call it? There's a lot of school jobs. A lot of schools, yeah, but there was a lot of open warehouses, big warehouses. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Construct all those type of mobs and... And, you know, you, it was funny because you could go for a drive around the west and when you say the west, you go back to Lavin and Tarnet and all that. And you go to all your jobs, you might have a dozen. Mm. And you go to, so you go do Footscray and then Melton and around that side. And you come back a week later and there's another six sheds starting. I mean, just, yeah. And I remember Mark Travis saying, don't turn your back on the area, mate. You like mushrooms, they keep coming up. And yeah. geez, he was, he was right. Yeah. He was right. But, Did you do Caesarea? Yeah. Yeah. There's a the, job and a half to remember. Yeah, yeah, there was a different job, of course. But it was all good. What about the airport? Were you... I had a little bit to do with it. It was sort of no one, nobody wanted it and, and no one wanted to do it, but everybody had to go with it. And I think I was, I was there for the longest out there, only because I got on so well with the CFMEU brothers and Mark was doing it and somebody else was doing it. So we all got on well, so... It was just easier that I'd go out there with them, and that was a different job. God, but yeah, there was a it was a, it was a bit of a different uh, world the old airport than out there at uh, on the Balderstone job myself. Mm. Um, 
The Airport Alliance. Airport Alliance. Oh, there you go. Not only were we involved in industrial matters, but we also got involved in political stuff too, supporting the East Timorese. Yep, yep. And uh, certainly uh, had an impact on uh, the airport and the uh, Air Garuda. Air Garuda, that's what I know about them. Yes, but it was, uh, was an active time. It was. Very active. And it wasn't just, as you said, and I know the older blokes were Billy and Billy Davis and that they had a lot to do with East Timor and I think they spent more time over there sometimes than they did over here. But, it was, you know, that was that was, that was their agenda, I suppose, and, and there was nothing wrong with it. And I do remember a refugee was brought back and I forget his name and we at Melbourne Central and we got him on as a... Sprinkler fit as labourer, mm. and he was, he was a ripper bloke, and, and some of the stories he told us are horrific, you know, but the unionists over there were taken away and shot. Mm. We were taken out in the jungles and they were shot, mm. just for being members of a union, not activists, but being, well, they were all activists, I suppose, and he was a very, I don't know what happened to him after that, but he, we, somehow the union got him over here and he he became an Australian citizen, all the rest of it, and worked, well, he did he was older than me, so he'd be retired now. But yeah, it was a, it was a, that was a good story. I mean, something that sits in your mind, you know. Like for coming from, and he was just so grateful. Everything everybody done, just people talking up, and he sort of shy away because he thought he was going to get yelled at for not working hard enough. I'm like, what are you doing, mate? You're working too hard. Slow down, you know. <laughs> well, again, solidarity. Again, yeah. Local solidarity, union solidarity, international solidarity. They were themes that uh, dominated my time in the industry for decades. uh, We can look back and say, well, we made a contribution to building this city, but we also made a contribution to building decent uh, conditions for a lot of people. Absolutely. What, looking back now, in, I guess... A period of prosperity, a period of activity by unions. What do you reckon would be the, the sort of highlights that you recall with some fondness? You know that you sit back and you think, mm, I remember that, and you get a little bit of a smile on your face. What puts a smile on your dial? <laughs> oh, lots. I don't know if I can bring them up on there, but. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, one of the good ones was, was the, um, again, it was a Medicare march around in up, uh, Spring Street, I think, down the bottom, and there was a lot of, there was a, it was a march or a rally of some sort, and the coppers got down there with their horses and let them fly with the, with the batons, and up the front was a, a group of sprinkler fitters, and, uh, they got attacked, you know, while the coppers were trying to calm the crowd down, as they did in those days, and... Long batten calmed down. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, well, one of Billy's sons was, was in, Billy Davis' sons was there, and a lot of, I think Earl might have been involved in it. And um, it got it got a bit ugly there, and um, of course all the, well, there's every trade known to mankind was there, and it got a bit rough, and the poor old wallopers like got dragged off the horses, and <laughs> one fitter was trying to jump on the horse, I don't know what he was going to who was going to steal it or just go for a ride for the crowd. But it was it was 
pretty full on. And, and again, it was solidarity. Boys were looking after each other. There was that one. Um, but that was a good, because we had good outcomes, we got what we wanted. And, and, um, and the uh, superannuation, we had a lot of meetings on sites and, you know, days off, afternoons off and walkouts. I look back on that and I think, because my dad was a merchant seaman, retired not long after it came in. And to look after mum, my mum was quite quite ill and he didn't have much in there but if it wasn't for the gains we made in construction which flowed onto other industries, he wouldn't have had anything. Yeah. And uh, it, was, it was, when he did retire, he had a little bit of money and then it certainly helped but it was, you look back and look on that, that's one of, I remember fondness for all the right reasons. I mean, people, if they've been in Sri long enough, they've been tired quite wealthy. You know, and so they should, it's hard work and you put the hours in and like we said before, you know, a lot of times the money's great but sometimes the wives don't hang around or your family lives and there's old blokes like George Despard and all those boys. Yep. They, you know, the efforts, they, they you know, one of just met Maxie Duggan and, and Stewie Walker, they all yep. had a crack, you know, and they fought the stuff they fought for and what they lost. Mm. People wouldn't understand and I don't think... There'd be the calibre very few and far between that would, would go out and do what they did, not for themselves, but for the future of the construction industry. And it didn't matter whether it was a, a plumber or an electrician or a carpenter or a plasterer or a painter. Everybody was a worker and everybody was a unionist and you're in the union, you look after. And those type of blokes, you know, they were very special people, you know. And I look on with fondness and we looked after little Georgie towards... You know, before he retired, and I had him on a few of my jobs, and Derek, who, you know, we were talking about before, and we, we kept him working, and he only goes, I only need eight months, Andy, you know, and we kept him going on with Albert Derek and a few other union officials, kept him going for another two years and put all his money away, and he was happy as Larry, you know. And well, why can't you look after people like that? Unfortunately, George has uh, suffered a... Uh, what, Quite historic, disastrous yeah. uh, injury, and uh, he's in a retirement home now. And mm. he ain't travelling a hundred percent, that's for sure. Yeah. But he survived um, that particular injury, and uh, cheerio to George. But some of the other individuals you might have met along the journey that you remember with some fondness. Oh, and yeah. I'll hit you up straight away with a favourite of mine. A man who gave me great advice and for whom I will forever be grateful, your Uncle Norm. <laughs> great man. Yeah, he was he was a different fellow, Uncle Norm. He was he was very good. He he never um he got he got me a job and he said the rest is up to you to keep it, but if you need a hand and I'm proud to say I, I never rang him up for another job. I'd, if I needed a job I got my own. I started back in, in 1980 and here I am. Well, just retired now, so 43 years later. But Uncle Norm gave me a lot of good advice and the, the best one, and I pass it on when I was assistant secretary with the plumbers to to the organisers, in particular, and to shop stewards. And the, 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 it's an easy one to do, but a lot of people think you would do it anyway. And it's if someone rings you up, you always return that phone call because no one remembers to... 101 times that you do ring them back, but they will, they, will, they will remember the one you didn't. Yeah. 
you can sit there and argue. So I rang you five times yesterday and ten times the day before, and I'll go, yeah, but you didn't ring yesterday. I needed you. <laughs> when they needed you. So that's a bit of advice. And, and uh, again, when I was working on the tools, he, he would say, you know, overtime, he said, bank that. He said, because you're not always going to get it. It's not always going to be there. And the day there's no work, you may need it. So that, that was a couple of good things, you know. Um, but he, he, Uncle Norman was a, a very unique character, you know. He, I don't think a lot of people knew. He was in Special Z over in Borneo, and I think he joined up when he was 17, and he was in Borneo when he was 18, and a half jumping out of aeroplanes in the jungle, boy, <laughs> fighting the Japanese, you know, which he came back and, done a, you know, he was always with the BLs for a long time, and... I don't think I've come across anybody who's ever said a bad word about him. And but he was, he was, you know, a lovely bloke and Tom catches up with all of us. That's right. And just to show what uh, breadth of experience the man had, he was also a champion ballroom dancer. He was. He was. He was, he was a unique character and yeah. I think the industry's been better for people like that. Anyone yeah. else you'd like to mention along the way? Uh, I'll well, ask you one that might be a little bit difficult. Uh, no, well, Billy, Billy Davis was always good. He was always one which I, I, and no, with all due respect to the other organisers, uh, Billy was a fitter, you know, so I went straight to the fitter and Barry Fitton, I'd go to those two for my advice as, as a fitter or as a shop steward. And even, even now, well, I've finished now, but even a couple of years ago, I'd still ring Barry and ask him for a bit of advice. Yeah. He's an old sage, old owl, as they all calls him, and you know they, they their advice was I'd, I'd make a decision in my head and pick their brain to see if it was the right one, and nine times out of ten it was right. But if it wasn't, I'd take their advice over me. So they were, they were good. Um, geez, I've worked with some great fellas and see for me, you fellas, you know, a lot of got a lot of respect for a lot of people. See for me and ETU, you know, a lot of blood, good blokes out there. Uh, well, well, Derek, I'm going to keep mentioning Derek, my old mate Derek. Um, he, he's terrific. A lot of people probably say he's a little bit loud, but that's that's Decker, you a bit know. boisterous. A bit boisterous. Yourself, Ralph, I've, you know, I've asked your advice a few times, more recently so than later, earlier, I mean, you know. Um, uh, oh. Can I ask you something that might be a little bit controversial in mm-hmm. the Plumbers Union, but... Looking back now on the history of the Plumbers Union since Second World War, George Crawford, where do you put George? Well, I was a bit young, but George was he was a hard taskmaster, I think. Like he, he ran those organisers pretty well, and uh, but he was very capable. But and, and I like George because you asked me a question, and he'd give you an hour-long answer. And it was very forthright, and you know he had that book, his footprints. Um, very interesting read if anybody wants to read it, uh, and it, it gives a good history. Um, moving on from George, uh, the other bloke there, Bluey Rabbit. I didn't have a lot to do with Bluey. He um, seemed all right, but you know and the, the other, all the organisers back, the Rosie and Pat McSherry, um, you know, Ricky Noonan. Had a lot of time for Ricky. They were all good, and I'm probably going to get a few rocks thrown at me. But uh, you know, it's human nature. They come a little bit complacent. 
you know, they've been there a long time and they sort of lost their way as in, you know, one of the last agreements we've done, we got 0.5% or 1.5% with CPI was running about three. Mm. So it was less than, you know, and it, it's not good enough, you know. And um, they had the members, they had the support because we wanted pay rise. We were prepared to go out. You tell us what you want to do and we'll do it. And uh, I remember very, you know, a lot of fiery meetings and... Um, I felt sorry for Billy a bit. As in he was always the one who was the focal point. Um, but he never held any grudges, Billy. It is what it is, you know. And nowadays, uh, you know, we're travelling along, with, I think, a few, about four or five years ago, we only had around about a dozen shops, George. And we put a lot of time and effort in it. And now we're up to around about 70, 75. Mm. And, as you know, we've also started... A thing called the um, Next Gen, which is very similar to the CFMU, and I, I picked that up off. I went over to the CFMU and MUA conference over in Perth, and I was there and I was going around with um, Charlie Weldon, and um, uh, I think Derek was there, and a few, yeah, they were. And anyway, it was after the, the day long CS, um, what do you call conference went. We're having a few beers and there's young blokes coming around asking if I want a drink or something to eat. And I said, oh, you young blokes, you know, what, what, what's the go? Are you all shop stewards? And they said, no, no, we're, we're the young, whatever they call them. Young activists. Young activists. And they said, I said, well, what do you do with that? What, what's that, man? And they said, oh, well, we've got an interest in the union, everything union and one day we'd like to be delegates and blah, blah. And then, anyway, on the plane back, I was, I was thinking about it and I'm thinking, geez, we'd need something like that because... You know, it's not always there when you know guidance and we're having kids asking us, or not kids, younger blokes, asking how to become a delegate. So I, I put it to certain people and sort of a laugh, laughed at you wouldn't get, You won't get one out of me. And it shut me down a little bit and then I was thinking about it subtly for about five weeks and I said, well, bugger, I'm going to have a meeting anyway. And one bloke said, you'd be lucky if you get one bloke. And I said, well, if I get one bloke, it's more than none. So I had a meeting. And I had about 12 mm. or 14, but and they, they were, most of them were already shop stewards and, they, and we had a quick meeting and it was good they enjoyed it. And then we had another one and that doubled. Mm. And uh, then we had another meeting after that and we had it on the same night as we had a general meeting. So I said, well, come early, we'll have our meeting and it's going to all come along to the general yeah. meeting. And Earl had been off interstate somewhere we were doing with our brothers in New South Wales and Queensland. And uh, he came back straight off a plane and he walked in and I would have had 35 mm. and we had to spit and everything and all that sort of thing. And he goes, what the hell's going on here? And I said, well, that's all the young activists. And he just he couldn't believe it and he shook me in because you had, we had the young activists, as we call them, or the next gen, and then we also had the older blokes who come down for a general meeting. So we had about 60, 70 people, which... In CFMEU point of things, it's not a lot, but for for us, it, it, it's a big turnout, you know. And they, well, they've they've just gone on. I mean, I've handed over the reins. I've got young Paris on for a while, and that lasted about two weeks. And I put him on as an organizer. And the next bloke who'd done it for about twelve, eighteen months, he's been put on the, on the road and another six months. Another one's been put on the road. So, but they, they still have their means, and I'm very proud of that. Yeah. Um, really proud of that. And it's it's good. And as I said, we're getting a lot of people that go to it. Not all of them want to be shop stewards. Yeah. 
they just wanted to find out what's happened within yep. the union, you know, and they do come on to the general meeting, but they, they talk with blokes their own age and they've got that movement going and they're loving it. Well, the bloke who's uh, sitting at the back of the meeting and has a few things to say is just as important as the bloke conducting the meeting at the front. Absolutely. Because when the bloke at the front's gone back to his delegate's office or he's gone to the next site because he's an organiser, it's the bloke that was talking at the back of the room who's still on the job talking. Yeah, exactly. 100%. And, uh, let's, uh, let's hope that that continues into the future. Well, now, another little so. bit of yep. controversy. Employer organisations. Mm-hmm. Looking back on the history of the plumbing sector, mm-hmm. I mean, there was a lot of shit went on back in the 60s, 70s, uh, terms of metal trades employers and what they try to do to plumbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of employer organisations like the master plumbers who were probably, shall we say, somewhat set in the past. But where do you think the industry is now? You know, you don't have to be complimentary when you don't want to be, but, you know, like, where do you think the industry is now with the employer organisations and so on? Well, we have to have them, obviously, without them. It probably wouldn't be... um... Don't work for arseholes, you don't work. But anyway... (laughs) That's that's just a throwaway yeah, line, folks. Yes, yes. Um, I was never ever happy with the, the unions association with some of those because um, I you don't have to be I'd, you just I'd, I didn't trust them and they, they, when when you deal with them it's just they're like car salesmen they all are they give you the smile and you know well we work together brother and all that when as soon as you walk out thank God we got rid of that idiot or asshole so. And I don't think their their concerns are the same as ours. I mean, I've, and I've seen it what they do with young young apprentices. Um, I think they're a necessary evil. I don't particularly like them. The AMCA, I mean, they're different again. The fire contractor, not just saying because I'm a sprinkler too, but they tend to be a bit more flexible, working in the right direction. Um, and, and they're all. Whenever they, they tell you the right things, when we want to shop, you know, we say to, them, to put in the agreement or go to the AMCA or Master Plumbers or the fire and say, well, we're going to put a delegate on this job and we want everybody to weigh in for his wages. Oh, no, no, our blokes can't do that. And they back down until someone gets hurt and then it's the union's fault of why we didn't have someone there. So, you know, um, they do some good things but not a lot. Not a fan of them. What about their... Uh Approach to upgrading skills and that, and the whole training regime in the plumbers, plumbing industry. The plumbing industry. I mean, a lot of them tell you how good they are and what they want to get, what path they want to go down to, and all that sort of thing. And we've got a school out there, as you know, Ralph, where it's second to none is in training for plumbers. We've got anything you can do, and if you're a union member, it's free. Well, we have some association members that just refuse to use it because it's run by the union, right? And it's, it's free training, you moron. Don't get your blokes trained up. No, and some of them would rather pay two, three, four hundred dollars per head to get ten blokes with their three grand with the raw members. It costs you nothing. Yeah. Um, they, they should be pushing a lot more, in my opinion, on safety 
Sati's a big thing. I mean, it's, as I was talking earlier, you know, when climbing up a wooden ladder and sitting there, you wouldn't dream of doing some of the stuff I've done and seen roofers, what they do, and not just roofers, you know, and you think, God, how the hell did we get away with that, you know? Scaffolders, you crazy bastards, you know? How would you get, and you just wouldn't do it nowadays. And the whole industry needs to be more safety conscious because we're still losing too many. Yeah. Can I just digress slightly on that subject because mm-hmm. we're heading towards uh, the end of the, the program. But one of the things I think that is, I've said this on a number of episodes before to people and I'm interested in their response. Going back a generation or more, there wasn't the same health and safety consciousness. There certainly wasn't the same training. But what there was was an approach, a collective approach, where people worked in gangs, they stayed in those gangs, they brought people into those gangs, they taught them how to do things, and there was this more organic approach to safety. And, yes, it didn't prevent accidents, it didn't prevent injuries, it didn't prevent uh, failures, but all the legislation, all the training hasn't prevented it either. It's not as bad, but that more human aspect uh, seems to me to be lacking compared to what used to be. As a scaffolder, you're on the ground... Yeah. Till the other two blokes yeah. in the gang decided you were worthy to come up yep. and safe to be well, very, working with. Well, very similar to sprinklers back in the day. And as I said, yeah. you know, going back to working off the double or triple extension wooden ladder. And you did, you worked in the gang. In the charge hand, which was like your foreman, he picked his crew. He knew he could do what and he couldn't yeah. do what. And and again, going back, they the majority of, of those charge hands, they checked his union ticket too. So you didn't have to rely on the steward or uh, say, you know, say um, shop steward, whether it was BLF or whether it was a plumber shop steward, whatever. The, the charge hand, he wouldn't let you in your gang unless you remember you had a sprinkler ticket. I was told by AFS when I started, we'll give you a job, but you can have your ticket. They were terrified. Mm. So that was one good thing. But safety was, when you worked off those ladders, they always said, if you don't want to go up, mate, don't go up. I said, oh, I don't give a shit, I'll have a crack, you know, and I'll buy a bottle. But you had a bloke at the bottom foot in the ladder, so he never moved. So if you're hanging pipe, you needed two two blokes to tie off, but you also needed the two at the bottom foot in the ladder. Mm. So that was, as you said, organically, you created your own safety. Mm. And the majority of charges, you had some old knock-off blokes, oh, don't be a weak bastard, get up and do it. But you had a lot of them saying, well, mate, if you don't want to climb up there, I'll get somebody else. So your job would be, you might be on the screwing machine all day or fetching the pipe or getting the pipe on. You might be on the ground or you'd be up in the air. And, you know, the majority of charge hands were safety conscious because it was their responsibility. And I found a lot of the injuries which we had, they weren't so much falls, but more so, more so, um, also... More um, later in life, of carrying the pipe on your shoulder. Yeah, yeah. Walking yeah. up lads, fitters had a lot of trouble with their hips, carrying heavy pipes and backs. Mm. Legislation tells you, and they can tell you 110 times how to pick up a piece of pipe safely. It'll get done probably once. Because it's just in yeah. human nature, I happen to get it on your shoulder and get it on the lift instead of getting 
off the ground onto a lift and then so on and so on. And, you know, with, with the invention or, you know, bringing scissor lifts into the industry, mm. a lot of companies, and I worked with them and, and done it, well, it wasn't a scissor lift for man to work out of manual hoist. It was a way of getting your pipe up, put it in the practice and lift it up in the air. It was a lot easier than getting the wooden ladder there. Yeah. So legislation on that side of it, but I'd, you can you can write about such as much as you like. It comes down to the to the blokes and the people who are going to administer it, whether they're doing it rightly or wrongly. Hence, you know, why a lot of jobs now we have so many HSRs. Mm. Um, it's a great thing, safety, because I mean, you, you look back and find the scaffold around you, you know what you've done. But that was the same type of thing, like you said. They never lift you up the ladder until you knew what you were doing. You could tie off the rope properly. You can you're strong enough to hold the pipe up because it was heavy. It was heavy and hard work, you know. And even now, when, when I was on, well, I wasn't going back a few years now, but when I was on the tools, I would never. I'd say to if I had an apprentice, I'd say, "You happy to do it, mate? You don't want to do it? I'll do it." And always made sure. So that's a check. But you also get the arseholes that say, ah, "Put it in. Get up and do it. You weak bastard." You know, and that's the worst part of it. And that, I think, is probably the point that should be emphasised, that the best safety, the best prevention of injury and so on, is the bloke you're working with. Yeah. yeah. And if he says, just do it, he ain't your mate. He ain't a mate and you don't do it. Yeah. But a bloke who's there and says to you, well, I wouldn't do that again. Yeah. Usually an older bloke says, yeah. listen, son, don't do that again. Because you could have had X, Y, and Z happen to you, and you got and you learn, mm. and that organic, comradely way of doing things is absolutely vital. I'm sure it still happens today because I haven't been on the tools for a long time, yeah. but it just was part of that learning process, which I remember with a very positive frame of mind. Oh, I do too, because I remember the good blokes saying to me, "If you don't want to get up on the ladder, Andy." And no, no, I'm right, or if you don't want to lean out the scissor or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember it was a job in the city, and for some reason one of the idiots put the pipe out through the hole in the wall, and they got all clogged up, but there was no sprinkler head. So the only way you could get it was to have to go over and buy a potion street. <laughs> which, you know, and I was working, the blokes were working, they were closer to retiring than they were starting their, their trades, and oh, I'm going, I'm going, oh, it looks like it's me. So when that was all set up properly, we got the boys from the sea for me to put it up, and I said, "Oh, I'll go on it." And <laughs> wasn't one of my favourite jobs, and, but they did say, "Look, mate, if you don't want to do it. We'll find someone who will." And I said, "No, no, no, I'm happy to do it." You know, it was, it was all safe. We had the harnesses on and everything else, and didn't stop the hard work from going 100 miles an hour. And even though, well, that's true. That's true. Now, at this point, you've retired. Yep. You've put in uh, 40-something years. 43. 43, not counting. Not counting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's ask a really simple and very blunt question. Yep. Do you regret any of it? No. Sensational. That is, that is sensational that, you know, we can, we can all think about the bad things, but you get to a point you reflect... And you can say no, I don't regret it. That's that's a great that's a great career. I wouldn't I wouldn't change a thing. Forty three years, and all I've done in that time is basically throw up red pipe and work for a trade union. So what what could I regret either? <laughs> <laughs> a very good point. 
So, Andy yeah. Wallace, thank you for being on our uh, Creatures of the Industry podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. It has. I've enjoyed every second of it, Ralph, and thank you very much for right. asking. It's it's terrific. And uh, we might get your old mate Barry Fitton on too. Yeah. And have him a chat with him. And, uh, you know, make sure we uh, cover a bit more of the plumbing sector of the industry. No worries. And thank you for the listeners and hope they've enjoyed it. So you've been listening to uh, Creatures of the Industry. Remember, you can communicate to us uh, by email, and that is Creatures of the Industry, all one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. You have been listening to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews about the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji, we all of us are workers united, we must stand Until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land We faced deregistration, it backfired in the face We're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place We hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our gains and break a couple of concrete pours to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builders' labour is a name to make a man feel proud.